Good. Thank you, guys. Right, now I can slow down. <sighs> no slides moving forward. That's good. You know, um, I had a thought. <laughs> and I thought was this. It's rarely one thing on its own that produces an extraordinary result. Isn't that right? It's rarely one thing on its own that produces an extraordinary result. I don't know about you, but I want with my life and this church, I want us to produce extraordinary results. I don't, yeah, there's, no, there's no point going for the ordinary, is it? You know, let's, let's go for extraordinary, but it's really one thing on its own that does that. And I was reminded of, um, I, uh, I did O-level chemistry. Who did, o, who did a, like a GCSE or an O-level in chemistry? Anyone do that? Oh, numbers of you. Do you remember those, those heady days? Some of you are like, why did you sign up for that? It's a good question. It's a good question. But I did sign up for a level coach. And I remember, I remember it was one of the most, I, I can't remember any, anything. I mean, I'm in the hydrogen. But I mean, apart from that, I do remember nothing about it apart from this one lesson. And it was not about chemistry at all. It was a lesson in peer pressure. In fact, negative peer pressure. Because what it was is our chemistry teacher, who was clearly keen to be liked by these kind of cool 15, 16-year-olds like myself, uh, clearly keen to be liked, and so he was doing an experiment one day with, with a, a bar of, of sodium. Anyone know what, what sodium is? Sodium is a highly, highly reactive metal, which actually forms salt and becomes fairly innocuous and, and harmless, apart from hearts and all that kind of thing. But anyway, it, in a metal form, it's highly, highly unstable and reactive. And so he was doing an experiment with putting sodium into water. And what he did is it's very soft metal. He had his knife, and he was going to cut this sodium and uh, was going to put some into the, a big vat of water, which he, which he had. And there was like a safety glass in front of it between us and the, and the water. So as he's there, and he's got his knife, and he's cutting this, he's like, should I put a little bit in, or should I put a bit more? Well, what do you think we said? <laughs> we said more. And he said, should I put a little bit in, or should I put this much in? Or should I? We said more. I said, should I put this much? Should we say more? But I could see, because I was sitting quite close, I could see his eyes, and I realized there was a point at which he passed his own comfort point, you know? <laughs> He'd done this experiment before, and there was this point where he passed his comfort point when he realized he was actually in physical danger if he put that amount of sodium in. And so, um, but then he, so he stopped at that point. He said, okay, that's the amount I'm going to put in. That's, that's a safe amount for this, this experiment. And we were, of course, we were, no, no, no. We were like, no, more, more. And then this chant began at the back of the class. More, 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 more. And I saw, you know, like the bead of sweat begin to form. <laughs> as he was caught between what was wise and what was a complete peer pressure buckling, which was what he was about to do, because after a while, he moved his knife a little bit, and then he said, oh, sack it. And he grabbed the sodium and threw it into the uh, water as he stepped back. And you know what happens? This water went, boom! <laughs> Exploded all over. The and for the rest of our time in that school, that mark was on the ceiling. It never... <laughs> It never left, as literally there was no water left in this huge vat. It had all gone upwards, and he was like, ah, shaken. We were all, I mean, the screen rattled. It was that kind of moment. But as I was thinking about that, it reminded me that actually what's true in the natural is true in the spiritual. It's rarely one thing that produces extraordinary results. It's normally the combination of two things, or two or more things, that produce extraordinary results. And God is calling us to not live ordinary lives, but to live lives that make an extraordinary difference. The church was birthed to make a difference. 
Why not just take us all to heaven when we gave our lives to Christ? No, no, because God has birthed us on this planet to make a difference. How do, we, how do we make an extraordinary difference? I just want to tell you a story from the Word of God. It's from Acts chapter 4, and uh, you can follow along, but I'm just going to tell the story. It's basically about four or five years after Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's been raised from the dead, and he's ascended to heaven, and he's left this fledgling, this early church. And the rumors... And the stories going around Jerusalem are quite incredible. Not only because of what Jesus had done, but because of this early church. This early church were going around saying that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was the one who had healed all these people, that Jesus was the one who was now healing people through them, setting people free, giving them life, setting them free from their sin, giving them the hope of eternal life. They were saying it was Jesus who had done all of this. And what was extraordinary as well about it was that, that they carried on doing this stuff. So there was a couple of their leaders, Peter and John, and they were walking through the temple one day. And as they were walking through, they came across a lame man. And as they ministered to this lame man, he was totally healed. The interesting thing was he was 40 years old and never, ever walked. And he got up in front of everyone, a huge crowd, and walked for the first time. And not just walked, he began to run and to jump and to leap and to praise God with all his might, which showed that he wasn't just healed physically, but emotionally and spiritually. He was totally transformed. I mean, he was like, you know, Tigger when the Coke machine's broken and, and dispensing free Cokes. I mean, he was like so excited. And of course, everyone got caught up with his excitement. Well, everyone apart from the religious leaders who weren't so excited. Because, of course, what they realized was they were the people who killed Jesus. They had executed Jesus. So if Jesus' popularity went up, then their popularity was going to go down. You know, it just not, wasn't good. So they hauled in the apostles. They pulled them in and said, look, guys, we just don't want you speaking about this Jesus anymore. It's unsettling people don't speak about Jesus anymore. And they said, well, how can we not speak about Jesus? We've got to obey God or you. This has changed our lives. And so they were going to beat them. They were going to throw them in prison. But then they thought, if we do, there's going to be a riot. So they let them go. Well, what happened was the apostles went back to their friends and they gathered with them. They told them everything that had happened, the lame man, the, beat, the non-beating that they almost had. And they told everything. And what happened was that the church then gathered and they prayed. And they prayed, and this is what they prayed. They said, Sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth and everything in it, it all belongs to you. You spoke through the Holy Spirit, uh, through our ancestor David, and you said, why are the nations so angry? Why are they wasting their time with futile plans? They're standing against God himself. In fact, God, we've seen it in our very city. We've seen Herod, we've seen Pontius Pilate, we've seen the religious leaders, we've seen the Gentiles. They all conspired against Jesus, who you sent, your holy servant. But it, was, it all happened according to your plan, God. And now, God, hear their threats and give us, your people, boldness. Because we don't want to hide here. We want to go out and preach your message. And as we do, will you stretch out your hand and do signs and wonders wherever we go? And so that's the sort of thing they prayed. And what was interesting was at the, time, at the end of their prayer meeting, the whole room shook. I mean, you know, this is like filling, rattling, shaking. <laughs> as the room shook after they prayed. And they were indeed filled with the Holy Spirit and great boldness and went out from there preaching about this Jesus under the threat of persecution from the religious leaders. What also stood about, out about these people is that every one of them 
was heart and mind together. They had a unity together, which was phenomenal and unprecedented. No one even felt that the stuff that they owned was their own. They kind of all shared it in common, which was extraordinary as well. And the apostles carried on telling people about the risen Lord Jesus. God's favor, his blessing was on the community. And one thing really stood out. There wasn't a single needy person among them. Not one needy person. Why? Because what would happen was anyone who had houses, anyone who had uh, uh, land that they didn't need would sell it and then they would lay that money at the apostles' feet and it was just distributed fairly amongst the community so that everyone had what they needed. I'll give you one example. There was a guy called Joseph. He was also nicknamed Barnabas, the son of encouragement. He appears later in Luke's story. But he had a field and he sold it and he brought it to the apostles and laid it at the apostles' feet to be distributed among the people. That's a story from God's word. The question for you and I is, so what? So what? What difference does it make? Let's pray, shall we? God, we just thank you for this story uh, recorded through history for our benefit. We thank you for these extraordinary things. And I just pray, Holy Spirit, open this story to us. In my words now, but also in our conversations later, let this story come alive. Let the, the ripples, the earthquake that began in this story that rattled the teeth of those who witnessed it. Let it rattle our teeth today. <laughs> Let us be changed by it, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. So what things combined together? I think you'll probably grant with me, it was pretty extraordinary, yes? This was, some of you, no, we see that most weeks. We see those kind of things. This was an extraordinary story, yes? has over-familiarity with the story, shut you down from it. This was extraordinary. We had signs and wonders. We had the poor. There were no poor among them at all. I mean, that is unheard of. There were no poor. They went out with boldness. The room was shaken after they prayed. I mean, sometimes after I pray, I mean, maybe the room's shaken, but I'll be asleep, so I wouldn't know. I mean, not all of my prayer meetings are that exciting, you know. So this was extraordinary what happened here. What, what combined together? And I would say it's two things. Firstly, they had some remarkable attitudes. Some remarkable attitudes. They had some remarkable actions. And it was all dosed in the presence of God and the Holy Spirit. These remarkable attitudes, these remarkable actions together combined to produce an extraordinary result that we saw. So let me just look at a couple of them that I saw, and you might observe your own. Firstly is this, they had a remarkable attitude to each other. I mean, they, it says they were of unity of heart and mind. There were more than 3,000 of them at this point. We don't know how many exactly by this point, but a lot more than 3,000. And yet, what Luke writes was that there was a unity b- b- among them. A unity of heart, a mind, a unity of finance, a unity of diary, of commitment to one another. You know, some of these guys would go on to be martyred. Some of them would be sent to Rome. Thomas would end up in India. These guys were going to be scattered. Their reach was phenomenal. This was the fledgling community that would go on to change the known world. Your life is different because of this story. Your life is different because of what happened in this community. This is the seed form of God's new community that would go on to change the whole world. Wow. Their reach was phenomenal. And you know what? It started in that place. 
every believer was united in heart and mind. I really feel that God is calling us to have an extraordinary reach. We're already seeing it with the numbers we're sending. We're also seeing it with the depth that we're penetrating into our own communities. We're seeing through the homeless and the project. It's a reach in, it's a reach out. But I felt the Lord say this to me, the further the reach of the branch, the more firmly it's got to be connected into the trunk. The further the reach of the branch, the more firmly it's got to be connected in the trunk. You know, there's a, there's a yew tree in England. I'm not sure exactly where it is, but it's uh, in the UK, and it's got the broadest reach of any uh, tree in Europe. And its canopy is the same uh, diameter as the um, great Albert, the Albert Hall. The canopy of this tree is the, great di- is the same diameter as the Albert Hall, and one branch stretches for 30 metres I tell you what, when you're 30 meters away, you've got to be hoping that you're stuck onto that trunk. <laughs> the broader the reach, the more important it is that it is linked together, that is connected together in heart. But what we fight against in our society is that people want intimacy without commitment. We're born in that environment. We want intimacy, but we don't want commitment. That is Facebook. It's intimacy, but with no commitment. That's what we are seeped in. Intimacy with no commitment. Influence without real community. We want to tell the world through Twitter or through whatever about ourselves, but we don't want real community because it costs. I'll I'll give you an example. You know, many years ago, the supermarkets thought, we can't just drive prices down. We're not going to survive. We need loyalty. So what, we, what did they do? They produced loyalty cards. And it was fantastic. When we got, do you remember when you got your first loyalty card? I was, loyal, I got, I was getting something back at last from the, the evil supermarkets, the loyalty cards. But then what happened? I got another loyalty card. <laughs> And then sooner or later, I had loyalty cards for every supermarket, and then I had loyalty cards for other things. And I've got loyalty cards coming out of my ears, which tells me what? That I am loyal to who? No one! (laughs) We are born and bred to be loyal to no one. And the supermarkets realized it, so they stopped calling them loyalty cards. What do they call them now? Reward cards. Because it was pointless calling it was a loyalty card because no one was loyal, look! I'm completely betraying both my. I used to feel guilty, I don't anymore. <laughs> but that's the reality, isn't it? They're not loyalty cards, they're reward cards because our society knows you can't ask for loyalty. But I can give you a reward. But of course, rewards is what? Individual. It's what do I get out of this? It's not about my loyalty to them, which is how it started. You be loyal to us and we'll reward you. No, 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 it's just purely we're just going to reward you to hope that you come back. The reality is this. You can't build a church on that foundation. I've got a vision of a people who reach far but are tightly knit together, who are a community that are committed, who travel the world maybe, but who come home who are linked heart and soul, who have united. Does that mean that they don't disagree? Of course not, but it means they're united in their hearts. They're committed. They're family. We are called to this. We're called to be a broad-reaching tree, but as we get broader, we must dig in tighter together. But you know what? What I've realized, because of my own heart, but for some of us, we get cynical. 
We get cynical about community, about groups, about serving, about... We just get cynical after a while. And the reason is, I think, is this. Behind every cynic is a disappointed idealist. Behind every cynical attitude in my own life, there is a disappointed idealist. There's something that I had a dream. I had a dream for something, and it got disappointed, and so then I became cynical. And that cynicism will kill our dreams. That cynicism will kill and hold us back from the very thing that we once dreamed. And Caroline and I have known this. You know, many of our great friends who we started, who we built this church with, have left and gone other places. They've planted churches in other nations, other cities in the UK. Some of the people that we raised our kids with are are gone. And we realized after a while when we were experiencing this, I mean, they all said it wasn't to do with me, but I mean, who knows? I don't know. <laughs> we, we began to realize that after a while, your heart begins to shut down. You get disappointed and your heart begins to shut down. And then you begin to not really form those deep relationships again. You begin to just start dealing with surface, don't quite give yourself away because inwardly you're thinking, what if they leave as well? But the reality is we had to stop and realize, no, 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 we've got to keep on investing. This, this side of eternity, that is going to be the reality. We are part of an ever-increasing, ever-growing kingdom. That strain is going to be reality. That's a tension that we live with, but fundamentally, our hearts have to stay non-cynical. We have to stay open and honest and genuine and express the pain, but also dive into community. And some of our greatest friends now are people we didn't even know 10 years ago because we've invested and given our lives into other people's lives. So... We've got to work hard to bind together. And we're working hard on it. We're part of a church here that's 1,000 people. Most of us have never even been part of a church that's 1,000 people. There are huge strengths with that, the resources, the, the, the impact that we can have, the, people, the fact that people come through the door and see the church is alive. They're expecting two people, you know, two elderly ladies. Nothing wrong with elderly ladies, by the way. They're expecting two elderly ladies on the front row. Um, my mother listens to this. Mum, there's nothing wrong with elderly ladies. Keep going. The... They're expecting, but that's what they were expecting. That's what they thought the church was. And they come and they see something pumping and alive and thriving and changing the world around them. But also, there's a deal with having a thousand people and building genuine, intimate community. It's, it's not easy. It's not easy. And we've got to work hard to, as we grow broader and our reach in this town and further gets stronger, we've got to grow. Uh, get much, much more intentional about digging in, becoming more and more one heart and mind together. And so we're, you know, we're changing, we're working on things all the time. You know, we introduced the devoted cards that you can fill in at the back some Sundays because we thought, well, instead of hearing one person's story, what about hearing a range of stories? And instead of praying for one need, what about a whole host of needs coming up? We can pray as a community together. Some people said, you've got too many events going on and it's distracting from real community because people are all busy, busy with events. And we thought, you're right. So we've dialed down the number of events and really, you probably noticed on a Sunday, really emphasize group life. And, and we're trying, and if you've got other ideas, that's, that's great. We've got to work hard at this. But I tell you this, if you've got cynicism in your heart, no matter what we do, it won't be enough. We can change everything, and it still won't be enough for you. Because fundamentally, you've got cynicism in your heart. And you're coming to church now no longer with the, the, the loyalty card mentality. You're coming with a reward card mentality. And we've got to repent, guys. 
We've got to repent of reward card mentality because we're, we are bred with a reward card mentality. And we've got to say, I am committed with all its faults and its flaws. I am going to work hard to build community because I want the reach to go out. I want to build and knit into the trunk together. And that's what you see in this community, isn't it? You see a people who started, they went on to change the world, but they started. Their, radic- their, their remarkable attitude was their one heart and their one mind together. The thing is, for us, we can hear a great story, but what's the practical application for you? What, is it, what does it look like? Is it inviting someone over for lunch? Is it caring for a sick friend? Is it joining a group? Is it leading a group? What does it look like for you? What, what's that sign-up in your heart that says, God, I've discarded my reward card. I'm picking up my loyalty card. For some of us, we're still waiting for ourselves to be mature enough or sorted enough or not busy enough to invest and I tell you what if you're waiting for that day it ain't ever going to come it's not ever going to come that's that is it you will never have enough time or be sorted enough or have enough you know no other issues or things to build genuine community you just won't the reality is that is life it's doing it with all of that stuff that counts it's doing it despite all of that stuff that counts. Let me just read you a story of a, of a, of a man. He's, it's from this book, Miraculous Movements. If you haven't read it, I'd urge you to read it. It's about what God's doing in the Muslim world at the moment. And let me just read you his little story. He was a successful businessman. He, wasn't a, 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 he was a respected in his mosque. He wasn't a sheikh. But this is his story. One night, Jesus appeared to Zamil in a dream and told him that Jesus, he, Jesus, was the light of the world. Ironically, though, Zamil woke to the horrible realization that he could no longer see. He'd met Jesus, the light of the world, and was blinded. Over the course of time, Zamil came into contact with some Christians who took him to a prayer camp, a gathering of Christ followers who dedicated five evenings to learn how to pray and whose approach was to learn it by doing it. We could learn a lot right there. The believers prayed for Zamil, but his sight didn't return, but instead something more valuable happened. He gave his life to Christ. And he met Mama Nadira, who was the lady who went on to uh, disciple him. By the way, Mama Nadira cannot read or write. When Zamil's family, that he, uh, family learned that he'd become a Christian, the response was immediately immediate. He was cast out of the family. His wife abandoned him. He lost his home. His personal possessions were thrown out, but he did not waver in his decision to follow Jesus, the light of the world. He turned to Mama Nadira. She gave him a place to stay. He started studying the Bible. He learned that to be a disciple of Christ, you've got to obey, not just hear the word. And so he decided he was going to. He wanted to go to another village to share about Christ. He asked Mama Nadira if he could go, and she said no, because he was blind. He then went to the missions organization that had trained him and asked if they would send him, and they said no, because you're blind. And so, one sunny morning, Zamil climbed into a taxi and drove away to another Muslim community, not telling anyone that he was going because they wouldn't have let him go. He was looking for a person, who could, uh, a person of peace who would be open uh, to the gospel. The problem was he was looking without any eyesight. But 
A few days later, he phoned a very relieved Mamadira to tell her where he was and what he was doing. About a month after that, he called with incredible news that already he had started a church in that community where he was ministering, and he was coming home, but only for a short time, because God had given him more work to do. Six weeks later, another church was planted in a different Muslim community to which Zamil had found his way. An unlettered widow discipling a successful businessman who had previously been a committed Muslim until he was blinded by the light of the world. These are the kinds of miracles and turnabouts that are happening every day, launching movements of new Christ followers all over the world. (laughs) I don't need to give you any more ideas, because if the Holy Spirit can give you a remarkable attitude so that other people in this community, you will come up with your own ideas. What does it look like? To drop the reward card, to pick up the loyalty card. Second thing is this, remarkable attitude to prayer. What you see in this early community, and I don't need to labour this because Phil and Carol did it so well a couple of weeks ago, but we just got to mention it because it stands out. This remarkable attitude to to prayer. Extraordinary results came because whenever you see this community, they were praying together. They prayed their hearts out until the room shook. And there's something about this for us. There's something about drawing back. There is a prayer revival going on around the world in the church and we as a community have got to join in. It's not just about putting on more meetings, organised centrally. It's about us digging in together to pray together. You know, I was reminded um, by the Lord of a time, it was probably 25 years ago, when this booklet came round about, uh, it was about Ramadan actually and how the Muslims would pray during Ramadan. It was challenged to Christians to say, pray for your Muslim brothers and sisters. As they are praying, you pray for them. And so I prayed for 30 days, including one of the final nights where you pray on the same night as Muhammad was, um, got his revelation and you're praying for Muslims around the world. And I stood on this hill and it was quite spectacular actually because it was lightning and thunder and it was all I felt like you know kind of the end scene of a movie it was that kind of moment and and then it started raining and it wasn't so fun but uh, (laughs) but as I prayed for that I just had forgotten about that but I I was reminded of that recently and do you know what now of course I get to lead you guys as we impact the Muslim world but also impact many other churches and I felt the Lord say to me you know when we pray God sows the seed in our heart that changes the world (laughs) It's prayer is so often not about what is going on out there, it's about what's happening in here. And notice that's the observing thing from, from their prayer, is often my prayers are, God, change this situation and change that situation and change that. But what do they pray for? It's striking, not what they do pray for, but what they don't pray for. They don't ask him to change their situation at all. Instead, what do they pray for? They say, God, give us boldness. Let us thrive in this environment that you've put us in. Now, I don't think that means it's wrong to pray for God to change our environment, but I think a more important prayer, a greater prayer, if you like, a more foundational prayer for us should be this. God, we want to be people who thrive wherever you put us. We want to be people who've got what it takes on the inside to bring a transformation on the world, on the outside, through what you do in our hearts. Give us boldness. Put your spirit on us. Reach out your hands and signs and wonders. Whatever it takes, this is the calling on us to pray, to pray in this way. If we want that sodium and water explosion, we'll have a remarkable attitude to one another, but we'll also have a remarkable attitude to prayer. And then lastly, they had a remarkable attitude to their possessions. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They had everything in common. You know, right at the heart of the gospel and right at the heart of God is a commitment to the poor. Deuteronomy 15 verse 4 says this, There should be no poor among you, 
for the Lord your God will greatly bless you in the land he is giving you as a special possession. There should be no poor among you. (laughs) That is the heart of God. I mean, just those words are just so powerful. What he's saying is this. My blessings are so rich on a people that if you get it, there is no room for poverty. (laughs) Because I will just keep pouring in as you keep pouring out. And what was amazing is in Acts, we see a picture of it. There were no poor among them. Should the greatest day of the church be in the past or in the future? Should we be living for a day when we can drive out poverty? I mean, I know we live in the tension of the age to come and the age that is now, but we should live pregnant with the reality that in God's heart there is no poverty on the planet that is too big for his resources. And we as a community begin to live out of that place. I just feel with the award, with everything else, we are being called back to reach the poor in a fresh way. And Paul Kellett had a prophetic word for us years ago, ironically linked to a tree, and it was a project as a giant tree, and underneath it, oak uh, saplings rising up from the ground, many, many thousands of saplings, which were reaching the poor in lots of different ways. It's already happening. We've got missional communities launching and other things, but right at our heart has to be this radical action to the poor. But notice where it starts. Notice where it starts. It starts with a remarkable attitude to their possessions. I mean, it's the uncomfortable bit, isn't it? It's the verse you want to skip over and say, let's talk about a different verse. It's that bit where they say no one owned, considered anything that they owned to be their own. Anyway, is it lunch? We should probably finish there, shouldn't we? No. It's that moment, isn't it? It's that, it's that verse. I remember for me, the first striking thing, I was about 15, going to London, probably for the first or second time, and I passed this homeless guy at the train station, and as I walked past, there was this like moment where I felt God say, stop, give him something. And first it was like, but it's mine. But I, I got past that, and then it was just the fear of the awkwardness of the moment, and so I walked past the guy, and I was like, no, no, no. And then, but you know when God's spoken, and your feet become like lead, and you're like, dra- you're like a zombie, you know, you're dragging yourself, like, gotta get up. But you're like, feet... So then after I was like, okay, 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 okay. So I went back and, I, and this, I can't remember the exact conversation, but this is basically how it went. He said, I said, um, so you're homeless? Yeah. So um, do you need anything? Yeah. Long pregnant pause. Have this money. Jesus loves you. I'm off. Bye. <laughs> and that was it. It was the most fumbling, clumsy attempt at reaching the poor you've ever seen in your life. It was embarrassing. It was idiotic. But you know, when I look back on it, I sense something of the pleasure of God. Because my fumbling, stumbling yes is far better than somebody else's clean, cut, mature no. (laughs) And that's the same for all of us. We feel so frail, we feel so stumbling and fumbling, and we get our words wrong, we don't do it quite right, but your not quite right yes is far better than somebody else's perfect no. Do what we can. We can't reach all of the needs, but each one of us, one by one, as we get a, a remarkable attitude to our possessions. And, and, and some people have looked at this over the, the course of Christianity and they've said, well, well, hang on a minute. None of them said that anything belonged to them, that w- none of them said that anything that belonged to them was their own. So who then belonged, who did it belong to? Well, then it must belong to all of us. 
And so they went into this kind of socialistic, communistic thing, and they all moved into a big house together. I'm not going to propose that. Although Damien and Vicky would really like it, actually, if we all moved in together. I can see that. But I'm not proposing that we all sell everything and move into one big house. To be honest, guys, it's been tried through history, and it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. I'm not proposing that, because I don't think that's what it's saying, actually. It's saying no one considered that anything they owned belonged to them, but yet it still did belong to them because otherwise they couldn't have sold it. And later in Acts, we see other situations where people owned things and the other believers don't say, well, why are you owning that house? And actually they met in that house. So it's not saying that at all. What's it saying? It's saying this. It's the fulfillment of Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It's a stewardship mentality. It says, this doesn't belong to me anymore. Even my reward card. In fact, this is Steve. It doesn't belong to me anymore. (laughs) It doesn't belong to me anymore. Because it does, but it doesn't because I'm looking after it on his behalf. I am a steward of his resources. And as we get that, it becomes a radical a radical action. The ra- remarkable attitude becomes a radical action. And you and I can reach the poor. And I would challenge each of us. Some of us have done the poor thing over the years. But I feel God would breathe fresh life into it. This is about us as a community embracing it again. You know, for those of you who have worked on the project, how, how are your kids doing? Have they got the heart for the poor that's in the heart of God? How are we taking this to the next generation? We're taking our kids to see an orphanage this, this summer because I want my kids right from the start to realize that it's about the poor. If you work with the poor, you're never far away from God because that's where he is. That's where he loves to be. If you want to be close to God, work with the poor because that's where he is. That's where he loves to be. This, is, this T-shirt is from Paula and her team in Mexico working with the street kids. What is it for you? Is it buying a T-shirt? Is it visiting an orphanage? What does it look like to have a, heart, a remarkable attitude to your possessions and that to then have radical action with the poor. And you can partner with us in this offering, but to be honest, guys, the offering is one thing. What I'm really seeking for is your, heart, is your hearts. I'm saying commit to us on this journey. Don't live with a reward card ministry. If, you're, if you've been too disappointed, if we have not been the community that you wanted us to be, then I would, with every blessing, urge you to leave and find one that is. Because you are too important to waste your life with half-hearted commitment. You have got too much valuable to bring to the body of Christ to sit here feeling like, I don't really trust those guys. If you don't, honestly, if you don't trust us and you're not in, and I, by, you know, I wouldn't trust me. I, don't, I make mistakes, you know. <laughs> I make mistakes. So I can understand that. But honestly, if you can't be one heart and soul with us on this journey, then find another church that you can be. But if you're here, then commit and drop the reward card at the door and give us your commitment and your one-heartedness and pray with us and give to us and serve with us because we believe that God's called us to reach. So when the kids ask you what you did on Sunday, you can say, Simon told us to leave. Um, (laughs) No, I didn't. (laughs) We want you here, but we want you here wholehearted for your sake and for ours. So, Father, we just thank you for this remarkable story. Let it echo through our community as we discuss it, as we wrestle with it, as we talk about it. But, Father, we want these remarkable attitudes mixed with radical actions.
that go on and produce extraordinary results. And we believe that by your spirit we can have it.